Welcome to Friends in Fiction, five best-selling authors and the stories. Novelists Mary Kay Andrews, Kristen Harmel, Christy Woodson Harvey, Patty Callahan Henry, and Mary Alice Monroe are five longtime friends with more than 80 published books to their credit. In 2020, they created Friends in Fiction to provide author interviews and fascinating insider talk about publishing and writing, and to highlight independent bookstores. These friends discuss the books they've written, the books they're reading now, and the art of storytelling. If you love books and you're curious about the writing world, you're in the right place. Hello, everyone. We are so happy to be here because it is Wednesday night. And it is 7 p.m. Eastern time, and that means it's time for Friends in Fiction. Welcome to our show. We have so much to look forward to tonight. I am Patty Callahan Henry. And I'm Mary Kay Andrews. I'm Kristen Harbell. And I'm Christy Woodson Harvey. And this is Friends in Fiction, New York Times bestselling authors, endless stories to support independent booksellers. Tonight, you'll meet Christina Baker Klein, and we are going to talk about her new book just out in paperback called The Exiles. We'll be hearing about her incredible research, the inspiration, or I should say the inspirations, plural. And of course, we will not let her get away without a writing tip. Her personal history that found its way into this novel is extraordinary. And in support of our... (laughs) And in our continuing support of indie bookstores, which you know we love, tonight our bookstore of the week is Wachong Booksellers, a vibrant, independent community bookstore located in the heart of Montclair, New Jersey. We'll be telling you more about that in a little bit. And of course, you know that every week we partner with Parade Magazine online. We stream from their Facebook page and we have an original essay in their online magazine every week. So this week, Christy wrote about how it takes a village to raise a child. You can find that essay linked on our Facebook page and in our Instagram on our Instagram page, too. But meanwhile, Christy, can you tell us a little bit about what you wrote about? I sure can. Um, so when Will was a tiny baby, when I got my first book deal and I all of a sudden was like, oh my gosh, I'm going to have to, you know, I can't do this all the time, full time by myself. Um, so we were really lucky to find um, some like family friends in our neighborhood who um, wanted to keep him for me a couple afternoons a week. And um, what the essay is really about is just how they became our family and Will's surrogate grandparents and um, just all the things they taught me about being a mother. And um, yeah. they're a really amazing couple. And um, Jerry, who is the um, the husband, passed away really suddenly from a heart attack. Um, a, gosh, like a couple of days before Under the Southern Sky came out. And um, it was just, it was really unexpected and it was really, really sad, of course. And, you know, he's one of my son's favorite people in the whole world. So um, it was just a reflection on, you know, everything they've been to us and, um, and, and all the people that, you know, help us raise our children. And so I was just interested from you guys, you know, is there anyone that, you know, maybe was a part of your village that's kind of unexpected? 
Yeah. Um, you know, when Noah was a baby, uh, I took the first three months totally off, which, you yeah. know, that was such a weird feeling. Cause I had him a little bit later. I had him when I was almost 37 and I'd been writing, I'd been writing books for so many years at that point that I felt so yeah. adrift. It was such a loss of my identity. So I started yeah. having, I, I mean, it was really, it was very a difficult time for me. So when he was, I think, I can't remember, remember if he was three months or six months, he must've been six months. We started having a babysitter come, um, a nanny just eight hours a week. And I felt so, I mean, I was in the house with her the whole time, but it was that feeling of, Oh my gosh, I can't believe I'm handing him off even for a small amount of time to somebody yeah. else. She has become yes. a part of our family. She still is. She was here today. I, I did a speaking engagement today. Um, she was in college at the time and now she's an elementary awesome. school teacher and Noah is starting kindergarten in a couple weeks and she's been with us all summer. And not only has she been doing just regular, you know, playing with him stuff, but she's helped get him ready for school. Like yeah. not just the schoolwork stuff, but the, um, talking to him about how exciting school is and how he's really going to make friends and, you know, the ins and outs of the classroom. So I, I really awesome. don't know what we would have done without her. She's phenomenal. And and that was unexpected. I thought I was hiring someone to spend a little bit of time with him for a short period of time and she'll be in our lives forever. Yeah. It's amazing awesome. how that happens. I mean, it's just, yeah. yeah, that's exactly, exactly how I felt. We had a neighbor. Um, we've lived in the same neighborhood for 37 years we're in our third house in this neighborhood in, in wow. atlanta in town atlanta neighborhood and uh when i first started going out on book tour my kids were um eight and four and uh you know i've been writing at home but going out on book tour was a whole different thing and my husband worked um his job was about 45 minutes away on a good day on a bad day an hour and a half so I recruited um, a neighbor's grandmother, Nanny, and she was living with her son and daughter-in-law and helping raise her granddaughter, who was a year older than my Katie. And the kids went to the same parochial school and we knew Nanny. And um, so one day I asked her, I said, Nan, do you think I'm getting out, ready to go out on book tour and I need somebody that could pick the kids up, uh, you know, at school and maybe take Andy to little league practice and, you know, get supper ready. Um, Tom could cook, but he, since he didn't get home till seven, some nights, do you think he'd do that? And she just hemmed and hawed and said, Oh, I, I don't think so. I think that's too much for me. You know, Andy was pretty rambunctious. He was four. <laughs> and, but her son, Billy um, came up to me at the neighborhood pool, not long after that. And he said, mama told me that you asked her if she would keep help keep the kids and, I think you ought to ask her again because I think she really wants to do it. Oh, <laughs> so I think she wants to be wanted, and so I did. And for years, yeah, nanny, our, her nanny, our nanny was her, and she was great, and she was so funny. She told me this amazing story about her own life and about her husband basically leaving and taking everything. And I used the the inspiration for that ended up in my novel, um, Little Bitty Lies. Wow. Ah. Oh, love it. You amazing. just never know what's going to happen. She's yeah. 99 now. Wow. I mean, there's just yes. no way we can do it alone. Yeah. No. There's yeah. just, I, I remember when um, Megan, who's now 29 and, and Thomas was one and I went to the gym because the gym had a babysitter. Yes. <laughs> it was. I really wanted to work out. I just had one hour and this sweet girl, Catherine Bizzle, 
came up to me and said, you know, I babysit because she fell in love with Thomas. And just like y'all, she ended up part of our family. My dad, who's a pastor, did her wedding. Her kids were, you know, my kids were in her wedding. I mean, it's just, and we're still really close. My kids think about her and text her and talk to her all the time. So, you know, there's so many instances where people come alongside of us. And I mean, it's just like this show, right? We can't, there's no way when one of us can't do it, somebody comes alongside. It's no different than with our kids if we're lucky. So, and I know Christine has had the same experience. We're going to talk to her in a minute because I have heard that even her three boys have sang a sea shanty for events. (laughs) I know. It's amazing. I know. And so now let's talk. I should have gotten a recording of that for the show tonight. That's amazing. Yeah, really. We'll ask her to post it. Wow. We'll ask her to post it. So now let's talk about our incredible guest, Christina Baker Klein. She is a number one New York Times bestselling author of eight novels, including The Exiles, Orphan Train, and A Piece of the World. Christina is published in at least 40 countries, probably more by now. And her novels have received so many prizes that it would take up half the show. But I will say that tonight she just hit the New York Times again. Her essays, articles, and reviews have appeared in publications such as the New York Times, the New York Times Book Review, the Boston Globe, the San Francisco Chronicle, Lit Hub, Psychology Today, and Slate. Christina was born in Cambridge, England, and raised there as well as in the American South and Maine. She's a graduate of Yale, Cambridge, and the University of Virginia, where she was a Henry Hoynes Fellow in Fiction Writing. Hmm. She lives in New York City in Southwest Harbor, Maine, with her husband, David Klein. We heard it's her anniversary tonight, so everybody... Happy anniversary! Happy anniversary! Anyway, um, they learned not to sing on the show. I mean, I know. Bad thing. Yeah. Christina and David are the parents of three sons, Hayden, Will, and Eli, who, as Patty mentioned, have been known to sing at Christina's events. You know, I follow her on social media and I love seeing the clips during the pandemic that she shared of her son Eli's singing performances. It was so great. Her new book, The Exiles, is out now in paperback and is a Target pick, a Costco pick, and a Barnes and Noble pick. Is that that's like a hat trick or something, right? Yes, (laughs) that's a trifecta or what? What is it when a horse triple crown? Triple crown. crown. (laughs) Trifecta. We were going to get there. So this novel is so deeply atmospheric, and Christina's prose is so descriptive and evocative. And The Exiles marks her third foray into the genre. Her other two, The Orphan Train and A Piece of the World, were grounded in American history, but The Exiles takes us to Australia and beyond and spotlights a 19th century injustice that I was hardly aware of. So, But I'll let her tell you about the book. So, Sean, could you bring Christina on? Hi. Hi. Or we could just talk Christina. about you. Yeah, we'll just talk about you the rest of the night. I <laughs> now want to be on this show every day because <laughs> <laughs> we do have some fun. So we are so glad you're here. The last time I saw you was at a restaurant in New York City with Paula McLean over a very fine glass of wine. So mm-hmm. until we can do that again, this is the best we've got. 
this is fantastic. And uh, honestly, the the combination, your chemistry, all of your chemistry together is just so infectious. It's Aww, a joy. Thank, yeah. you. Well, thank you. Don't say infection. We don't want to hear the word infection. <laughs> you know, that is what my, when I do voice to text and I'm trying to say friends and fi- friends and fiction, it this always connects to friends and fiction. fiction. It does on me too. It does for me too. Yeah. So if, so if that's what you mean by infectious, Christina, you would be correct. <laughs> and and our, our phones agree. Yes. <laughs> so Christina, Christina, it's such a pleasure to meet you. Um, Before we take a deep dive into the inspirations and origins of this story, can you give us a quick description of this beautiful atmospheric novel? Sure. So um, first of all, thank you so much for having me on. So much fun. Um, Okay, so The Exiles is the story of the convict women who transformed Australia and the native people, the Aboriginal people, whose way of life was utterly changed, um, you, you might say destroyed, when right. British colonists landed on their shores. And the whole thing takes place in the mid-19th uh, century, so around the 1840s. Um, and it's really based on a very true story that not many people know about. So that's the, that's the story. That's awesome. It is awesome. And you're right, because I didn't know very much of this story. I think I'd heard whispers about convict ships, but never thought about it being women and never thought about the actual impact on Australia. So before we dive in, y'all, everyone out there listening, put your questions in the comments on Facebook and YouTube, and we will try to grab as many as we can. So Christina, my favorite subject, one of, is origins what I call origin stories. And in your author note, you say, attempting to identify the genesis of a novel can be a fool's errand. So here I am on a fool's errand. (laughs) (laughs) I've been on a lot of fool's errands, but here I am on another. And I've heard you talk a bit about your tingle, what what we all, all of us often call spidey sense, and about the origins of this novel coming from three separate streams that flowed into the novel, this river of a novel. Can you talk a little bit about that? A lot a bit about that? (laughs) I mean, I think something that might be interesting to people who are starting out, I mean, I always talk about this when I teach, is that um, I've learned to trust what you just said, a spidey sense we all talk about. Mm-hmm. I've learned to trust this feeling, which often um, is something I want to resist because oftentimes it's a it's an ambitious idea that feels daunting to me, that feels too big maybe. Um, I don't know enough about it. I, there are a lot of reasons to say no to a big idea. And mm-hmm. Orphan Train was the first novel I wrote where I was so terrified for legitimate reasons um, of the story that I just, it took me, I actually thought about that book over eight years. I, I wrote two other novels. I published wow. a book and I just eventually couldn't escape the story. <laughs> but the reason Orphan Train was scary to me is that, I mean, there were so many, but one is that it's, I, I, I don't know if you guys have experienced this, but I stumbled on this story and it's not my story. My husband's grandfather was, nobody knew, on an orphan train. Essentially, he was featured in an article on orphan train riders. He was orphaned and sent on a train to 
Jamestown, North Dakota. He died. And my mother-in-law read this newspaper article. We were all there when she discovered this after he died. And he'd never known any of it. And so I knew immediately I got that feeling that we were just talking about immediately that it was this crazy idea. And especially because even in the article, it said that hundreds of thousands of children went on these trains. My husband was a history major in college. He had never heard of it. My father's a historian. I, you know, none of us had heard anything about it. And the fact that the daughter of a train rider knew nothing about it too, which by the way, I now know is not uncommon. So, but my fear then was that it wasn't my story to tell as I said, Mm. and also writing about the past was not something I'd really done before. And it took me a long time to realize that no one else was really writing this story. And then like, you know, eight years later, there's still not a novel written about this. So um, I just plunged in and it kind of gave me the confidence with my subsequent books to do the same thing. So in different, completely different areas. So with the exiles, I read a little piece. So uh, my, it was, Again, it was a, probably a decade ago when this first came up for me. I read a little article in the New York Times. It, there was a column called Mother Load that was about parenting. Lisa Belkin used to edit this column, which, by the way, would no longer be called Mother Load, I don't think. Yeah. It would be, you know, parenting. Parent so, trap. Parent, right, exactly. Um, but weirdly, one week she had a piece on these convict women and their children on the boats, on the ships. Yeah on these repurposed slaving ships, I think her point was, we don't have it so bad now. Um, but I was captivated and I didn't really know why. And I started from there to, to look into it. And I only know now having finished my novel that there are three different ways that that three different reasons that it appealed to me. One, <clears throat> I taught in women's prisons. I was teaching in a woman's prison when I read that piece. And I was really interested in incarceration, what it does to people. Also, how women, you know, maintain their sanity, have their identities in prison, and what the criminal justice system does to people as well. So that was one big interest. Um, Another latent interest is that I had gone to Australia as a Rotary Fellow in my 20s, and I'd been obsessed with it. And I read this huge, fantastic book that I would still recommend, and it's still in print, called The Fatal Shore by Robert Hughes, who's this wonderful writer. Um, and it was it's a 700-page book almost, and he, he devoted one chapter to convict women and Aboriginal people together, one chapter together wow. in this enormous book. Wow. And that was the chapter that interested me most, but I had never really followed up on it. And then the third is that I wrote a book with my mom, a nonfiction book on mothers and daughters of the women's movement, meaning people, either the mother or the daughter had been quite involved in the 70s and 80s and in the sort of second wave of the women's movement. And the question that we posed was, how do you rebel against a rebel? And is feminism passed from one generation to the next? And if, you know, in other words, is that one of those things that people that that kids will toss to the side because they don't want to be like their parents? And we found oh. that, yeah. So we found that there were the ways that many of the daughters rebelled against their feminist mothers was to be stay-at-home mothers. That was interesting. Oh wow! Yeah. Why do we swing these pendulums? That's right? so interesting. That's 
Wow. Feminist mothers raise feminist daughters, which Mm. was kind of interesting. But the point to me, uh, what I realized that I had been so interested in is that we interviewed 60 mothers and daughters and had all these women's stories. And that was, that project was so pivotal in my life because it made me realize the value of women's stories and also stories that have not been told in history enough. Right. So what, what am I trying to do? I'm trying to tell stories that have, that most people don't know a lot about because they haven't been included in our typical history books. So, so those were, that's sort of the genesis of this book. That makes me beg the question, Christina, you've got three sons. Yeah. Have you raised, have you raised feminist sons? I have raised feminist sons. Good I don't know you. if any of them would say that they were feminists. Oh, <laughs> <that's funny. laughs> um, no, I think they would. I think they would. But I, but you know, I, yes, I mean, they've certainly seen me, you know, uh, working and they're all sort of cheering, cheering on. Um, but I will say it's kind of ironic and funny to me that I'm one of four girls and I've I write about women and I did this book on feminism with my mother and I have three boys and three of my sisters have three boys, which is oh hilarious. That's yeah. bizarre. Yeah, that's Maybe y'all were sneakily rebelling. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Your DNA is rebelling. I don't know. That's right. So, Christina, you talked about how you came to this novel and kind of all these forces that that came together and told you, okay, this is this is the story for you. This is kind yeah. of the path we're going down. But once you have that inspiration and that genesis, you need to build that world. And you did that yeah. so powerfully here. So I would love to hear you talk about, well, you know, and, and I know you've kind of said that too. There's a um, great quote from you where you've said, in ways large and small, the task of a novelist who writes about the past is to make it come to life, to find the singular details that make the story breathe, which is such a great quote. I mean, I I write history too, and I 100% agree with you. Can you talk to us a little bit about the research you did for this novel and how you did, um, how you use that to bring it all to life? Yeah. I mean, I did so much research for this book and for the other two historical books. I mean, I even, I mean, I know we all do research when we write contemporary books as well, or at least I do, because I'd have a memory like a sieve. Um, But I, of course, did a ton and it was terrifying to be writing about a period. Um, I know, Christy, you read it, you read about the most, Christy, you read about the most amazing, um, you know, long ago periods. I'd never really written about any time before 1920. The orphan trade story begins there, and my book about Christina Olson and Andrew Wyeth begins there. This is yeah. the 1840s, which felt like an it is an entirely different thing. It's an eternity. And it's, and yeah. I never lived in, you know, so that just yeah. felt terrifying. So my way in, so I did a ton of research. I, I always befriend, I always, I've been really lucky with these three books to befriend a woman, usually in her 70s, who's an expert on the subject and who knows everything and is really interested at this point in her life, perhaps, in sharing it. So I had such a person for with Orphan Train and with A Piece of the World, this wonderful tour guide um, who knew everything about the Wyatts. And, uh, And then for this book, I was doing research online and I discovered this professor named Allison Alexander, who's in her 70s, who has written 35 books on the history of the convict women. She herself is descended from convicts. Wow. Uh, 
And she was just that just gave me chill bumps. That, like that. Yeah. Oh, so amazing. So I discovered her website. I realized that most of her books weren't available in the United States. So I emailed her and I sort of stalked her and forced her to be <laughs> friends with me. And then I went to do research and we became really good friends. And if you go to my website, you can see pictures of us together and stuff. Um, I just adored her and and um I I I think she enjoyed sharing her knowledge. And so I I mean who I'm I'm reading all her books, you know, asking her questions about them. Um and I found that she was just this conduit to this world. In addition to all the research I did of other books and the, you know, going to the places and all of that, which I find a pretty important part of the process. But I will say um, that I, to me, the most important thing is I want, uh, I want the reader to feel absolutely present in the story. So I'm, yeah. I, I'm, I do everything I can once I've done all that research to get rid of every detail that doesn't matter directly. Yes. To the oh, that's so hard. That's it is. So hard. hard. You're, I'm a good girl and I want to show my work, you know, yes. <laughs> like wanting to prove that I've done all this research. I don't even realize I'm doing it, but of course I am mm. doing it. And so with every draft, I just have to be more and more ruthless. There's this great yeah. quote from, I think Norman Mailer did a damning review of Gore Vidal. He wrote, Gore Vidal wrote a historical novel and Norman Mailer said something like, no button, no bauble, no ribbon goes unremarked. <laughs> <laughs> Can we make it a goal that we never get that review? Oh my gosh. Gosh. I'm I thinking know. about some editing I need to do right now. <laughs> I know. It's, you know. It's not a question of like, is it in service to the story? And one question I got recently that sent me off on a whole tangent, but it's along these lines is, um, is there anything that you did a lot of research about that you had to cut? And I, I was, I, I became slightly obsessed with these bush rangers, these guys. They're often runaway convicts or ex-convicts who go into the bush and set up these settlements and live like crazy. They're like bad cowboys. This is how they lived, you know. They were marauding. They would steal things, but they lived in these camp encampments, and um, everybody knew about them. And they were really kind of terrifying. And I had a whole thing where I'm writing about them, and then I realized none of my characters would have been there or seen it or experienced it. Really, I had to cut. I had to cut oh. all of them. Oh, I know that hurts. No, <laughs> it was such nice. an interesting world, you know. But you know, I also feel like the more you you fall into that world, and the more excited you get about learning about it, the more it kind of shapes your narrative and shapes your story, even if those things don't directly go into it. Do, do you find that too? Oh my gosh, so tr completely true, uh, and. You know, for me, I don't know how you guys feel about going to places and trying to be in the places you're oh, writing. Yeah. Yeah. I have yeah, friends yeah. who have no interest, who write novels yeah. that and don't, you know, or just can't be bothered, whatever, don't want to deal with the travel. Yeah. Um, of course, during COVID, it's hard. And I didn't yeah. get to do some of the travel for my next book, but but I will. But um, but I'll tell you, I'll give you an example of something that I would never have known. And there are a million things like this. This is small, but it's in the book. So um my sister's often my travel companion, Cynthia, and we were in this 
fabulous little echo farmhouse in Hobart, Tasmania, five miles outside of town. And we're standing, it's this modern building and the, the woman, the Airbnb woman had left us, you know, goats, yogurt, whatever, all this stuff, this lovely, you know, basket of stuff, a bottle of their organic wine. And so Ooh. we're having a glass of wine on the porch at, you know, as at sort of sunset. And all of a sudden on the hill, right, there was a sheep's meadow in front of us. It was very bucolic and gorgeous. If anyone wants to go there, I can tell you where it is. And um, on the on the hill, we saw this movement, kind of like a rippling. And as we looked closer, we realized it was hundreds of wallabies, which are <gasps> tiny kangaroos. They're like little kangaroos. Oh, and they, so cute. They gather on the hillside at dusk. And then in the novel, I describe it as like balls tumbling out of a basket. They all, one starts hopping and they all hop down the mountain. That's incredible. And it's crazy undulating natural scene that's only five miles from this bustling, you know, capital city, whatever, town. And it was just such a dramatic moment of seeing nature. And so I have it in the novel. There are a lot of things like that, that when I was there, I just took notes about. And we went to a wildlife preserve and saw these kangaroos. We were lounging with the kangaroos. (laughs) So that was really fun. And just all those layers, you know, of experience work their way in in small ways. Well, really what here's to pull back. The point was <laughs> that I wanted to show that for these English women, these British, English, Irish, Scottish, Welsh women, this was so mind blowing. And in the novel, I have the Tempest as a kind of counterpoint, as a as a text. Um, there, are, the, the one one woman is reading it, passes it along to the next, to the next, and uh, and I saw this as a Tempest like experience because these women go to this island and it is unlike anything they've ever seen. And it feels like magic in some ways, even though they're convicts and they're going into, you know, this women's prison, the world itself is so vastly different than anything they've ever experienced that it is like a whole, they're on a different, it's like they're on the moon almost. And so I wanted to convey that and going there and being able to see how different it is from the topography of Britain and of course our own was really important and useful. Absolutely. Wow. Yeah. I can only imagine what that would have been like. I had a, my grandparents on my father's side were Irish immigrants. And the only thing we know about my grandfather is that he had a brother. And when my grandfather came to the United States, his brother went to Australia. And as far as we know, was never heard again never heard from again so there's this whole maybe branch of the family that we don't know anything about in australia no no no. you should find that'd be a good trip it's really just anecdotal nobody else in the family knows anything that's so Um, interesting mary i think we need a trip to find out about the solution Um, anyway one of the similarities with Orphan Train and this novel, The Exiles, is um, so many descendants of train riders are doing massive amounts of genealogical research to try right. to find out more. You said your family's from Ireland. So many right. train riders are from Ireland. Oh, and, of course, I remember from the book. Yeah. And so many of the descendants of these convicts are also trying to find out 
you know, where their ancestors came from and what they went through. And it's a big, it's a sort of big world of that kind of work and research. Yeah. Well, it's definitely a rabbit hole you can fall down or or crawl down. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Don't, don't you feel that with your own novels that it's just all a rabbit hole and you have to be really careful? Like, yes. Yes. Like, preservation. Yes. Say, example, <laughs> Bushmen who live in the. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's like that. <laughs> you know, uh, the Christina, the three women characters are two British convicts. And I'm not, I'm not convinced that my great uncle maybe didn't have something going on. But anyway, uh, Evangeline and Hazel mm-hmm. and an orphan daughter of an Aboriginal chief. It, do you pronounce it Mathena? Yeah. Mathena? Mathena. Yes. Mathena. They're also, they're also very different and unique, but you have a dozen real life, half a dozen real life characters that show up in the novel. Would you talk to us about that, about the delicate art of weaving the real in with the fictional and how you came to, I don't know. It seems like you must've lived in the world of some of these characters. Yeah. Well, first of all, can I just say, I never intended to write novels set in the past. In fact, I remember, I don't know if you guys remember the writer. I mean, she's still alive. She writes still. Her name is Catherine Harrison, but she wrote memoir. And then she wrote a novel about like foot binding. I mean, she wrote a novel set in the past. And I remember thinking, what a bizarre choice. Like, why would you, she's a contemporary novelist. She's a memoirist. She's got it going on. Why would she do make up stuff set in some time period she doesn't live in? I really did not understand. Uh, and um, so it's not like I set out to do it. It kind of was a slippery slope. Yes. <laughs> only a third of orphan was set in the past. And it was sort of the dutiful, I had to tell the story of the train. Two thirds of it was set in the present day, which I was much more comfortable with. And then the next novel was the same period as orphan train. It was the twenties to the forties of, ni- of the 19th, you know, 20th century. And that did not seem like the past so much to me, Mm. but this one I squarely went way deep into the past. And that was a whole, a whole different thing. Um, But the, so to your point, I never imagined that I'd be writing about real people and mixing them with fictional characters that would have seemed so bizarre to me and and false. How can you ever do that? But, um, but but when I wrote, I kind of had this, trial by fire or immersion, uh, this terrible experience <laughs> writing a piece of the world because every character in that book really lived and some are still alive. It was a oh, terrible. Oh, wow. That's it hard. Was such a, it was- I love that book. I just have to interject and say that. I just love that book. When you started talking about it, I would just, all these little pieces of things that have stayed with me. Sorry. No, thank you, Christy. I mean, I it's in it was my most hard one book and the most terrifying book. And the Wyeth family is so litigious that it was terrifying. Oh wow. Yeah. So Andrew Wyeth's, you know, foundation and his family are very protective. And I couldn't use the cover on the book, which I we had originally planned to use, you know, the painting Christina's World on the cover of that book. Anyway, long story short. They were fine with it. I even did an event with Jamie Wyeth, who's a the artist's son of the guy I wrote about. So that was all fine. But I learned how to write about real people, I guess, and also how to sort of extrapolate. And I've got, I gained confidence. And to your point, Mary Kay, I, um, I 
I learned that that um, Elizabeth Fry, for example, a Quaker reformer who wanted to help the women at the same time that she was quite judgmental about them, um, was a real. She was person. a teeny bit passive aggressive, just a little. <laughs> just she was like, well, you got yourself knocked up. Here you are, you know. I yeah. mean, she was a little, and she was, but she was, you know, she was also the only person who treated them like human yep. beings. So. You take the good with the bad. Yeah. Um, and there were, and and then Sir John Franklin, who is famous as a polar explorer, as an Arctic explorer, he, um, there was actually um, uh, a mini series called The Terror that came out last year, two years ago. And it was about him and his crew getting lost in the Arctic because they disappeared and never were seen again eventually. Yeah. But when he was slightly younger, he was actually sent to Australia and was in charge of this whole settlement and all these convicts. Oh, and wow. so that was pretty fun to write about too. So that it's become a kind of, it's actually become kind of fun to do. And my new novel, sadly, um, also involves real people. I <laughs> <laughs> so, get away from it. I know. It feels like, why am I, what am I doing to myself? <laughs> why do we make our life so hard? It's hard. Yeah, it's Real people are so hard. hard. These days I'm going to yeah, write a contemporary no. novel again. And yeah. Yeah. yeah, re yeah. Real people will call you up and threaten you and, 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 <laughs> and worse, yeah. stick their lawyers on you. Yeah, yes. exactly. Nobody yes. wants, nobody wants to see a lawyer letterhead. No. <laughs> <laughs> That's every novelist nightmare. Oh my God, nobody wants to it's see. totally terrifying. To, it's totally terrifying. <laughs> you know, we, um, we did a podcast with Jean Hanf Coralitz about the plot. One of my really that, good I wish she, that yeah. book just Thank you for tuning out, in. And I, Join I us having palpitations where our live because show every, no every novelist's other nightmare is being accused and of plagiarism. Subscribe yes. to our podcast. Well, I just want to talk about that book for one second because she so said so. Here. Jean has been has been a pretty midlist writer for her career, and it's been frustrating as hell. We were just talking about that, and she uh, is such a great writer. She's Hopefully always been. Is. Writer. And it's just that question of like, why did this book not, you know, and, and she's had two of her books become movies, even the I know. and admission. Um, she's, she's just a wonderful writer. And so it was always that question. So anyway, at the beginning of like, two months after COVID, she was like, Oh, I wrote this novel during COVID. And she sent it to me on like as a, an attachment. And by the way, I don't read anything online, because we're all online all the time. And I have online. But I read the first two pages, Mary Kay. And I was like, Oh my <laughs> I know. God. This I know. And I knew right away. And I just read the whole thing like in one night. And I called her up and said, this is insane. You are going to, this is it. This is it. And I, it, it is, it's so fun to see the success of the plot. It's such a, it's, isn't it just, it's the plot of that novel. That's so incredible. And the writing is beautiful. Of course. It's so propulsive. Yeah. And terrifying as as yeah. <laughs> to anyone who makes a living writing. It's it's yeah. Yeah. Terrifying. But it's so fun to see it take off. And Jimmy Fallon just selected it. I mean, I know. we're gonna yeah. Yeah. It's so great. How cool is that? Yeah. It's so awesome. Well, speaking of kind of that journey from, you know, where you began to to what ends up being your big breakout. Um, 
I'm really interested, just kind of like moving back a little bit. You know, you were born in England. You've traveled to Australia, lived in the American South, the Northeast. So I'm interested in how this has all brought you into being the writer that you are today. And backing up even further, how did you get into fiction to begin with? Really good. Sort of two questions. <laughs> um, <laughs> so first of all, I think I don't know about you all, and I'm not going to presume anything. But in my experience, writers often emerge out of tumultuous families or backgrounds in one way or another, and it's not always true. But in my case, my parents are Southern. My mother's great great grandmother was the first woman to graduate from college in North Carolina. And my father was the first person in his entire extended family, not only to graduate from college, but to finish eighth grade. So this combination of a Georgia boy whose parents were mill workers and had, who had grown up on a mountain with no running water. And my mother who came from a very educated Her father was a school principal. Her mother was a librarian. And, you know, all of her relatives had been teachers, et cetera. And everyone had gone to college. Very interesting combination. And then add to that the volatile mix. They met at Furman, which is a Southern college. My dad was. In Greenville. Yeah. My mother was valedictorian. My dad was a big football star. And, um, And, but he went off and did a PhD in British labor history at Cambridge University. He was super smart. He was supposed to be a minister. He went to Wake Forest and he had a little scholarship to study for a summer and it ended up changing everyone's lives. So they went off to England where I was born and I was born and raised there over nine years off and on back and forth. And they ended up in Maine where they became total hippies, threw over their Southern Baptist (laughs) childhoods. And um, I had a really kind of creative, but also volatile childhood. And, uh, you know, my parents loved each other, but were pretty different as I've described. And, uh, and, you know, so a lot, a lot of, and I think I wrote as a way to kind of make sense of my life. My parents, my dad has published 12 books, all, you know, with university presses and everything. Um, One of which actually was a big, book about Jesse Owens and it became a mini series and stuff. Oh, that was his wow. book. Wow. But, but not so but but I want to step back and just say one further thing for any parents of young children but also writers. Um, when people ask me, you know, when did you know you wanted to be a writer or how did, you know, when did you start writing? I, I always think, you know, all children are born creative. Every child dances and sings and draws and, um, you know, plays. That's true. Right. Every kid is artistic. And the question is, in a weird way, is not like, why did I continue? But why do kids stop? Why do other people stop? I love that. You know, and so I kind of think that I just didn't stop. And I, I also, and just by the, my, personality, I think I, and I I tell my own own kids this all the time, you know, people are going to be saying no to you in a million different ways, always throughout your life. And I had an impulse to just follow the yes, the like small yes. (laughs) It came along. Oh, I love that. I'll give you an example. So I was in the fifth grade 
And my teacher was Mrs. Carey and she was lovely and she wore wigs. I remember. And um, <laughs> she, gave us, <laughs> she gave us an assignment to write a short, a little story or something. And we handed them in on a Friday. And on Monday morning we came in and this is back when the desks were lined up in rows, you know, and she walked down the rows. She put each person's story down and said something to them and moved to the next. And when she got to me, she put the story down and she said, um, I have to tell you, I really liked your story. And in fact, I read it out loud to my husband this week oh, and oh. he liked it too. And that was all she said. Whoa. So first of all, yeah. the fact that she had a husband blew my mind. The fact that she, <laughs> <laughs> the fact that she didn't sleep school, at the school, that she what? liked school and had a different life. But the, she didn't say she loved my story. She said she liked my story and that her husband liked it too. And I swear that was enough to keep me going for the next decade. Oh. I was like, well, now I'm a writer because Mrs. Carey liked my story. Oh my and God. I'm sure she said it to every single person she was walking down the aisle and talking to. But it really did. It was the smallest encouragement. And again, for teachers out there, like the smallest encouragement yes. for a fifth grade kid makes a huge difference. And so I felt that, you know, and I had, I took that with me a little bit and, uh, and that was how it started. I'm just impressed that your fifth grade self could tell she wore wigs because like, I, I'm really bad at that. <laughs> well, I think even I now got that later. I think oh, I like okay. now I okay. realize, Oh, that very black hair on that rather older <laughs> woman. <laughs> that was always perfectly brushed and in yes, place. It, sometimes yeah. the part was here. Sometimes it was twisted 45 <laughs> degrees. Yeah. <laughs> We should do a story. We should do a show talking about teachers who um, really inspired or encouraged us. I had a, I'll never forget. I had a sixth grade teacher. We had written some kind of a, a, a story. We'd been asked to write some kind of a story and I was in the bathroom and my sixth grade teacher, Mrs. Allen came in. And of course it was hugely embarrassing that your teacher was in the bathroom. Oh yeah. When you were in the bathroom being human. And yeah. She was in the stall and she was laughing. She was just like, ha, 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 ha. And I'm washing my hands and she came out and she goes, Kathy, I read your story and I just can't quit laughing. Oh my gosh. That's, oh, that's amazing. That's I know. So the that's fact that she went to the bathroom just was stunning to me. <laughs> Totally. <laughs> they get married. They, they go, go to the bathroom. <laughs> no, I remember like you would run into a teacher at the grocery store and you'd be like, oh my God, it was what like are they doing here? He's a celebrity, what? I know. Why are and they like, like, oh my gosh, stay away. You know? <laughs> um, uh, well, Christina, oh, sorry. I was going to say, I have a kind of bookend to that story, which is okay. that um, when I was in college then, this is another thing that was, well, so I was in college. I got into this college seminar that was very uh, potentially damaging. I'm shocked that I still am a I became a writer because it was with writers who are now famous, like names you would know. And the teacher was a who had just who the teacher was a woman who had just won the National Book Award, and she was she taught me everything I need to know about what not to do as a teacher. She was a terrible teacher and she was so awful in that she pitted us against each other in this creative writing oh, no. And she, yeah, yeah, she was awful. And she was very 
intimidating, but also like really uninterested. And you never even could tell if she'd read your work, you know, that kind of thing. And she just was lazy and horrible. And she wore scarves and she was very pretentious. But anyway, the weird thing was she, without telling or asking or even telling me, handed my, like the two, the only two short stories I'd ever written in my life, really, to her agency and they signed me on and I was 20 years old. And that wow. was um, a shock. First of all, she gave me an A minus. Like she didn't even like me. Um, and, and, but suddenly I had an agent with, at the age of 20, which never happens. And it was at a moment, I'm super old, but it was at a moment when like Red Spinellis really. and Jay McInerney and Donna Tart were all getting huge contracts at like the age of 20. So it, you know how agents are often like lemmings and they sort of follow the trends. And yeah. so I think that there was a trend that the, of young writers, which did not happen with me, but, um, but I, that gave me, even though that was a really weird experience of that class, yeah. having this young junior agent in this agency who was interested in my work and would call every four months and say, what are you thinking? Are you writing a novel yet? I think that had a profound influ influence on me, you know, having just having someone who was waiting for something. And so even though not everybody has that experience of getting an agent at that age, I always... I always tell my own students to have someone who's waiting for it, like exchange work with a friend, have someone who's for, to whom you're accountable, that whom you respect. Um, Cause I think that makes a difference. That's great advice. Great advice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. for sure. Um, well, Christina, can you tell us a little bit about why you chose our bookstore of the week? Oh my gosh. Yes. Watch on books in Montclair, New Jersey for 20 years. I lived in this wonderful, wonderful town. Um, we left, this is it. Watch on books. And here's something they do that I've never seen at another bookstore. And I love it. They have stenciled on the walls of the bookstore names of famous writers um, who are long dead and alive. You know, everyone from say, um, you know, uh, I don't know, Charles Dickens to Alice Walker. But then they also wow. stencil the names of local writers. And if awesome. you've published um, a book, you have your name, or I think you have to have published two books. You have your name stenciled on the wall. And it's just such a really sweet and encouraging thing. They're amazing to the local writers in town and they host book parties and all kinds of creative events and they have a great children's section and Margot, the owner is just fantastic. So I can't say more good things about them. They're great. Well, Sounds that's a kind of like a road trip bookstore. Yes. Mm -hmm. trip if we bookstore. go, will they, will they put our names on the wall? Yes. You have to write two books, okay. Patty. Okay, I'll write on the okay. wall, Patty. <laughs> I have to move to Montclair. Okay. I have a magic marker, Patty. They can't stop me. <laughs> <laughs> we carry Sharpies with us. There's no stopping us. Okay, since, since you have already given us so many writing tips, we are going to skip right over to if there is a book that you're reading that you would love to recommend. Well, actually, I'm reading Amor Toll's new book. I cannot called, wait to read that book. We're so excited. Awesome. It's coming out. Amor is just such a delightful human being. We, you know, I live in New York now and uh, we've done a bunch of events together and he's been, he's, 
he's super savvy about the writing. You guys should have him on. He's so fun. Oh, and so we would love it. it. We're working uh, on it. <laughs> but his new book uh, is called The Lincoln Highway. And it's this sort of epic story about um, the highway that crosses from New York all the way across America. And it's, um, it's just beautiful and, 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 and immediately immersive and fun. I managed to get my hands on Amor's book that's coming out in, I think, either end of September, or beginning of October, the new uh, Cloud Cuckoo, um, the uh, Tony Dore, Anthony Dore's new book. Ooh, that's also yeah. 600 pages. And Jonathan Franzen's new book, Crossroads. Oh, oh my they're goodness. It's a big fall. It's a big fall. And they're all 600 pages. They're enormous. Wow. wow. <laughs> and wow. I, just all pr- I just pray that all of them don't drop on my pub day. I was going to say, <laughs> please tell me they're not on October 19th. Are these updates? Yeah. <laughs> I know, right? Uh, October 5th. At All right, Christina and everyone else, please stick around because we have one more thing to talk to Christina about. But first, we want to remind all of you to check out our Friends in Fiction Writer's Block podcast. We have a brand new one every single Friday along with the shows. And this past week, Ron and Christy talked to Vivian Howard. And this week, this Friday, we were just talking about Ron and Mary Kay talked to Jean Hamp Corlitz about the blockbuster book, the plot that was just chosen for the Tonight Show book club pick. So awesome. And um, in case you guys haven't heard, Patty, Mary Kay, and I all have winter books coming out. And we have a Winter Wonderland subscription box that we've partnered with Nantucket Book Partners um, to introduce all of you. And we're so excited about it. So if you you, um, purchase this box from Nantucket Book Partners, you can also get it off our website or our Facebook page. You'll get each of our three winter books and an exclusive special Friends in Fiction coffee mug and hot chocolate. So we're really excited and we hope that you'll sign up. I it's feel so left out. All three of those work together. It, how they look so great. I know. I know. Every, every time you guys show that picture, I'm like, I should have worked harder last year. I should have been away from you. Look a few things going on. I, I think you <laughs> just lacquer. God, I really We like tied up with a bow together in bookstores that you can just like have a be awesome. Well, when we're all like, we can't live, and we haven't bought anyone's gifts, we'll be like, I'm I'm finishing my wrapping. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. All right. So if you are not hanging out with us yet in the Friends and Fiction Official Book Club, you are missing out. We tell you that every week. So the group, which is separate from us and is run by our friends Lisa Harrison and Brenda Gardner, is now more than 7,000 strong. Um, They just celebrated their one-year anniversary. They had to put off their one-year anniversary official celebration that will be coming in another week or two. But on August 8th, they'll be hosting a happy hour with our dear Ron Block, our Writer's Block podcast host. And then on August 16th, which is a Monday, I will be joining them to discuss The Forest of Vanishing Stars, my brand new novel, um, which, you know, didn't come out in the winter. So I'm clearly the odd man out. But, um, <laughs> but they have plenty more fun events in store. So make sure to join them now if you haven't the Friends and Fiction Official Book Club. And next week, join us right here again at 7 p.m. Eastern to meet Lauren Willick, who wrote the historical fiction novel Band of Sisters, along with our and 
our first special guest co-host, Christina McMorris, will be stepping in. She'll be my stand-in while I'm vacationing on Cape Cod. And, um, yeah, I'm, I'm going on vacay, y'all. Oh, awesome. I have to write every morning, so I'm going to be accountable to all of you. Yep, yep, yep. stick with it. What goes around comes around, that's all I can say. Yep, yep, yep. exactly. If, and if you're ever, I love her, she's wonderful. And if you are, uh, yeah, Miss <laughs> and if you're ever wondering about our schedule, it's always on our Friends in Fiction website as well as a sidebar that has events on our friends in fiction Facebook page. And if you haven't signed up for our newsletter, please do that because every week we send out a newsletter. Christina answers some great questions on our newsletter this week about what her idea of a great day is. I think it's going to Australia. I'm not sure. Um, So don't forget um, you can keep up with us um, on that friends in fiction newsletter. So, Christina, so here's the one final question we promised. So we usually ask our guests what the influences around reading and writing in their childhoods were, but you already kind of touched on that. So I would love to ask you about the book you wrote with your mom. The conversation begins, mother and daughters talk about living feminism. So you've said that this led to a powerful lesson in the value of women telling the truth about their lives. Can you talk a little bit about how that shaped your writing going forward? Yeah. So the second wave of the women's movement was in the 1970s. um, And it was women who the first wave was sort of the suffragettes, right? And the suffragists, whichever you want to call them um, and getting the vote and all of that. And then the second wave was about, um, equal work for equal pay and, you know, birth control and sort of women's issues that were people galvanized around um, and wanted to sort of make the world a better place, especially for mothers and for women going working, et cetera, et cetera. And, um, but a lot of those stories, again, as I've been saying about my own novels set in the past, weren't necessarily stories that we were reading about in school. And so, interviewing even, you know, my kids going to school didn't know much about the second wave of the women's movement. And my mom and I were really interested in looking at how and if feminism has passed from one generation to the next. Um, And so we wanted to sort of explore the idea of how you rebel against a rebel, as I said. And, um, and so we interviewed all these women and um, what I learned through the narratives was just that many of these people had been a part of pivotal moments in American history. And, you know, re- recently there've been some, some mini series actually with like Kate Blanchett. There's one, uh, there's a great one. Gosh, I'm trying to, it was about Phyllis Schlafly, I believe. And um, there just have been some terrific sort of revisitings of that period, but um getting to talk to women who'd lived through it was really important. And I think it shaped my interest in writing fiction, which is, as I I think I've said, writing about little known pieces of history and writing about corners that people don't necessarily know about that might have big reverberations. And I think the second wave of the women's movement has had huge reverberations and that we're all, we're all, we can all now take things for granted as a result of them. Um, And so... Yeah, so that has been, that book 
was really important for me and also crazy to write a book with my mother. I mean, we were very intimately engaged for a couple of years working on the book. And, uh, you know, before that, I was sometimes a bratty teenager and we didn't always get along. But somehow doing that project together where she was in charge of the interviews for the mothers and I was in charge of the interviews for the daughters. But we were we did it them together and we were present with them and we edited back and forth it was a really special kind of a special thing experience. That's awesome. How lucky are you to have gotten to do that? I know. I'm thinking my mom and I writing a book. My daughter and I writing a book. None of it's gelling. But anyway, (laughs) none of of it's clicking. But Well, to go go back quickly to Dorothy and Benton Frank, she and her daughter, you know. They wrote wrote Teddy Spaghetti together. Yeah. Yeah. So to all of you out there, we encourage you to grab Christina's novel, The Exiles, the The Exiles. And how could you not with everything that you just heard from her and hopefully from our bookseller of the week, Wachang Books. I'm probably saying it wrong because that's my superpower. (laughs) So Christina, we are so happy to have you here. It was so much fun. And thank you for being so open and sharing about your inspiration and your life and your mom and all of the things that flowed into this story and sharing your wisdom. This has been a really wonderful night. Thank you. Thank you all so much. What a joy. What a privilege to be here. Thank you. It was our oh, pleasure. Thanks. Thanks. Happy, our anniversary. Pleasure. Yeah, Thanks. Happy, yeah, happy anniversary. Yeah, happy anniversary. Thank you for spending part of your anniversary with us. Now go spend the rest yeah. of it with that cute guy. Tell your husband thank you. <laughs> yeah, thank you for loaning you to us. So everyone out there, you are such an amazing book-loving community, and we will see you a minute at our Story Point after show, the Sip and Stay after show, and come back next week, same time, same place, as we welcome Laura Willig with our special guest host, Christina McMorris. Meanwhile, to keep you busy, check out our podcasts, our Winter Wonderland subscription, and all of the fun going on on our Facebook page and our book group and our podcast. Good night, y'all. Hi, guys. Wow. I'm totally intimidated. I'm just going to go hide my head. What? Why? Because she's so amazing and has accomplished so much. Yeah. Yeah. But she she reminds us, well, first, y'all welcome to our Sip and Stay Story Point after show. We're going to break down the night. Um, and don't forget, for those of you who are watching, we want to show the power of our amazing community. So pop over to Instagram, look up Story Point Wine and follow them. Let's see how many we can get in one night and impress them. Ooh, yeah. <laughs> and I think they have a website and a newsletter too, right? So you can sign mm-hmm. up. You can sign up for that. It, it, it's just, they fit so well with us because I think they're yep. they're all about story. I mean, that's kind of the the story behind their brand, brand is and the they power have of story. And yeah, they have I mean, wine. That's, that's really the part that fits especially well with us. But <laughs> <laughs> stories and wine. It's no wonder it's the wine of friends and fiction. Oh, <laughs> uh, so intimidating. I, I And not only that, but she she reminds us again and again what we all talk about. Yeah. If we're not terrified, why bother? Right. You know what? I actually have to say, um, so I met her 
I mean, a lot of books ago. So, I mean, it was years ago and I was like terrified to meet her because really? yeah, it was like right when the orphan train was, um, it had just been so massively successful and, um, is it a part of the sky? Is that her next book? Is that what it was called? That I loved so much. So I was just talking about a piece of the sky. Yeah. yeah. It was a few years ago. So, I mean, my memory is not that great, but um, it was such a great book, but I was so terrified like to meet her and I was so intimidated. And she is one of the most approachable, like kindest, warmest people. And she just, and she gets as terrified as we do. Right. Yeah. Like if I bit off more than I can chew, how am I going to find the research? How much of my research do I put in there? Even though I want to put it all in there, because guess what? I spent a month researching that. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I also always appreciate hearing from someone who wasn't an overnight success. I mean, that's wonderful in its own way, but it's great to see someone like her who really worked her way into this and learned and, and if, pushed herself and became better. And, and I mean, she's phenomenal. She's at the top of her game. She's doing an amazing job. I remember when the orphan train first came out, I had gone to a writer's workshop in Antioch, Ohio. I'd been going for a few years and had some friends. Actually, I was part of a book club there. And I told one of my friends, you know, the orphan train wasn't an overnight success. Yeah. I think if I remember correctly, that book was a slow build and it was a bookseller and a librarian hand sell. Like word that's my memory. I could I could be wrong. We'll have, you know, maybe we'll ask Christina. We'll text her and say, Hey, is that the case? But I it was this huge slow build of people saying, Wow, what an amazing story. And you know what else struck me is she said both about the orphan train and about this. It reminded me of Vanessa Riley last Mm week. They both said the story had been brewing for a decade. Both of them said that. And and I'm thinking once a story starts brewing for me, a decade is a long time. But guess what? It's not, right? If there's something that's been kind of back there tingling and it's been a decade, maybe it's time to do something about it. Yeah, that's yeah. a good point. That's a good No, point. I have one I want to write and I guarantee it'll take me a decade to write it. You know, <laughs> well, so I hope I no one else writes it first. But Wait, a, de- that's a, a decade in real time or a decade in Christy time, which is really like <laughs> <A> de- two weeks. <laughs> which, which, is, which is like carpool, pretty much carpool. Yeah. She's like, I probably won't have it written until the middle of next week. <laughs> so... <laughs> so <We're> hilarious. <laughs> we, Patty, we and are I, envious. Patty and I were working. Patty had already been working for quite a while and had a contract for um, her book. And I just sort of started out of nowhere and was writing it in secret. And I finally shared it with with y'all. And Christine, I mean, uh, Kristen basically goes, Christy basically goes, yeah, I think I'll write one. And then the next day it was done. <laughs> nope. It only took a day. That's so true. No, I never say Christmas. A day in, a day in. But like, what else years. was I doing? It was COVID. It was freezing cold outside. Every <laughs> Christmas thing was canceled. Like, yeah, what, what else were you doing? You had nothing else on your plate. You didn't have friends in fiction. You didn't have a child. <laughs> You, didn't know, have a you weren't moving out. out of that house. Yeah, nothing. You're, were, you, you weren't okay. single-handedly running the Friends and Fiction shipping depot. I mean, there was really... <laughs> the bags. Y'all, I had a nightmare last night that all the coffee mugs came to me instead of to Nantucket. <laughs> I got hilarious. up this morning email. That is a nightmare. Oh, my God. That is <laughs> a nightmare. Horrifying. 
Oh man. Okay, so you're going to Cape Cod tomorrow. I am. We are um yeah, we have a five thirty pickup to go to the airport mm-hmm. and I have to finish packing. Um we're gonna go. Uh Tom, my great husband, got us tickets. I said I'd wanna go. I've always wanted to go to the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum. So, and I tried to go online and buy tickets and they were like sold out, but I said, call them and throw, just tell them some bullshit story about your wife, you know, is dying and her last wish is to go to that museum. <laughs> my wife is a famous author and she would like, to no, she'll bring a bunch that. of books and leave them. Yeah. There. <laughs> she'll let anyway. you take pictures with her. <laughs> yeah. That's gonna that's gonna float a lot of boats in Boston. Anyway, somebody <laughs> took, somebody took pity on them and gave and didn't give us tickets, but uh, they found I guess some people canceled. We're gonna go to a Red Sox game. I don't know. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know if uh, we're gonna wear our Braves oh. our Braves spirit wear or not. That's probably a bad move. No. And then Friday we take the ferry over to Nantucket, and I'm gonna do gonna a signing awesome. at Mitchell's Books. Awesome. And and um I really excited about that. And then we're gonna go to Cape Cod and awesome. see some very old friends and um and I'll have to write every morning. So I'll be on the text chain with you all. Okay. okay. We're back on our riding horses for sure. I don't want to brag, but I get to see Patty next week. So oh, everyone be jealous. Um, yep. yeah. Oh, Meg says, see if I can solve the art heist mystery. Or write a book about it. Or yeah. that. I do love a good heist. I know. Right up your yeah, That might be your next book. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Well, I am in the mountains, and it is crazy how just driving up here from Alabama, like every whatever miles, it dropped one degree, one degree, one degree, wow. one degree. Oh, I'm so jealous. Oh, it's just, you know, it's, it's so weird because it's really cool here, too. I mean, I guess it always is, but. It's yeah. been 82 for like days on end. And it was like 84 the week before. Like we really, I mean, I'm knocking on all the wood because it'll probably be like 99 tomorrow. Yeah. But it's been like in the low. It's been so pleasant. I'm shocked. Not in Alabama. It's supposed Not to be Florida. 99 here tomorrow. And oh. it's rained every day for the past two weeks. It's like living in a dishwasher. <laughs> <laughs> Are you a writer or something? Like hot and it's steamy. <laughs> I saw there's this like little piece of paper and this like uh, it was like across the street. I saw one of those like group bulletin boards and it said, "Want to know what it's like living in North Carolina in the summer? Take a shower, don't dry off, put all your clothes on, and walk around for a while <laughs> <laughs> with a sprinkler hitting you." With a sprinkler yeah, hitting exactly, you. Exactly. No, I, I, it's it's. Nice to get out of the heat for a bit and get so Christy, I can't wait till you get here. We will we'll send we'll send you guys pictures and and then hold flat flat Kristen and MKAs. Like I still have flat Kristen and like I'm not sure what to do with her. Like, is there a protocol? Like, do you do I just keep her forever or obviously? I mean (laughs) I would you can't get rid of her. I know. I'm like I would recommend a shrine. Is that too much? (laughs) 
<laughs> what should we put Not on next it? Next week, because I won't be home. But the next week, I'm going to have her like hanging in the bookshelf, <laughs> <laughs> taped up. Oh my God. I expect some candles, maybe some some wine offerings. Story story points acceptable. The, the story point is acceptable. The other night, my parents were here and we're all sitting around the dining room table, and Kristen is like in a chair. <laughs> And As I, I put her there. I mean, that's just oh where I like, left her. Did you put an empty wine glass in front of her at least? <laughs> oh. in, my, in my wine glass, I mean a champagne glass. <laughs> I mean, I swear to you, this could be the start of a Stephen King novel. Like we carry around flat Kristen, then we put a full wine glass in front of her, and then somebody looks over and it's empty. <laughs> And so we're several states away. I'm drunk and exactly. Yeah, exactly. And then there's a knocking. Like, What's happening? The, then there's a knocking at the door, like in the bedroom. <laughs> oh my oh, god, Patty, maybe you could you do your special doorbell. I <laughs> How different. I, think I have been fired from sound effects. <laughs> I have been fired. Like literally, I've been okay. fired. My husband like, is cooking dinner downstairs, and I can smell it. And I and have I'm, another Zoom, and I have a, another virtual event at nine PM. So I also mean, have to cry. Come. We'll really show up and cry. ask you questions. <laughs> See, Maggie Van Walker, our managing director no and guru, just wrote in the private chat: "No sound effects for Patty." So. Yep. Sorry, Sorry. we love you though. You have a lot of strengths, and that's (laughs) that's the thing to focus on. So, all right, you have a great trip, Mary Kay. Yeah, travel safely. Great show, guys. I miss you all next week. We'll We'll miss miss you. you. We'll miss you too. Send loads of pictures, okay? I will. Bye. Bye, you guys. Thank you for tuning in. Join us every week on Facebook or YouTube where our live show airs every Wednesday night at 7 p.m. Eastern Time. And please, subscribe to our podcast and follow us on Instagram. We're so glad you're here. Produced by Autovita Studios. Connect your voice to the world.